0: Well, we've been looking carefully for the last two weeks at Romans twelve one and 2. They're some of the most familiar verses that you'll find anywhere in the Scripture. Many of us have memorized them from our earliest days of walking with the Lord and have been some of the most beloved that we have had. And we're coming to understand why they are so beloved because they present and speak to one of the most important topics in all of the Christian life, they're dealing with the concept of worship. And as we've been seeing in the weeks past, this is an area of great confusion for a lot of people. They don't understand what worship is about. They don't understand when they come to a place like this and into a setting like this, they don't understand what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish, what this is really all about, and so they're left to simply evaluate the experience Based on whatever metrics they may have in their mind, whether it's their feeling, their past experience, their perception of what a church or all that stuff is supposed to be, the, the tendency, more often than not, is to evaluate it based on how you feel. When you leave, are you inspired? Are you, are you moved? Did you laugh? Did you cry? All of those things are the metrics through which most people gauge worship. If those feelings aren't right, then they conclude the worship isn't right, and they try to fix their worship by fixing the music or manipulating the experience or changing the environment or stimulating the sensory organs in other ways, through lights, through smoke, through incense, through candles, through images, through statues, or whatever it might be. And all of this becomes the complex of Christian worship in today's society. But what we find as Paul addresses the topic of worship, what we find in Paul's words is very different in its focus, very different from what most people think about when they think about worship. He is using in these two verses the language of worship, presenting language that in many cases is technical language straight out of the Old Testament, The language having to do with presenting an offering and and the language of sacrifice and spiritual service of worship, priestly language, as you go through the text. He never uses the language of emotion. And if, in fact, there is any focus in what Paul is saying, it is very cognitive. It's very, we might say, intellectual. Intellectual. In fact, as he calls us to worship and he expands on his admonishment from verse 1, moving into verse 2, we find that he has in mind by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice that what he is actually driving us to is very mental, we might say very rational, we might say very intellectual, very cognitive, which for many people repulses them. They cannot stomach the thought of such a thing in the same concept of worship. In fact, for them to have the right kind of worship experience is for them to disengage their mind, to let their feelings and their emotions just flow. For them to think or to think too hard or to think too deeply is to impede the work of the Spirit in their minds because for them the Spirit is... Opposite such intellectual activity. It's a pollution. It might even be a demonstration of pride to sit around and and promote this kind of intellectual stimulation. But it's at the very least, in the minds of many people, it's not the emotional stir, it doesn't generate the feeling that they're seeking. And so they go elsewhere. But here Paul tells us, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here, Paul's using this language of worship, but it's very much the language of cognition. It's concerned with our mind, with our thinking, with our discernment, with our evaluation, with knowing the right and the wrong, knowing the will of God, knowing what is good, knowing what is acceptable, knowing what is better, and what is not. And this, for Paul, is the world of worship. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that worship is merely intellectual. I'm not telling you that it should be all intellect and no emotion. And I'm not advocating that our worship should be cold and unfeeling or that we should be overly stiff or indifferent or undemonstrative or unexpressive in our music or whatever it might be. In fact, I think that we need more of that. I think we ought to embrace the concepts that move us and the beauty that is all around us and the way that we create beauty and all of those things. But what Paul is emphasizing here, what we ought to realize is that those emotional expressions may or may not come in worship, but they're not the essence of worship. They're not the source that energizes our worship. What energizes our worship is what takes place through our worship in our minds. And the deeper you explore the truths that are pressed into your mind through worship, the deeper that you explore the truths that Paul has in mind or that the Scripture unfolds for us, the deeper you go into that, the more likely you are to respond emotionally. See, people just want to manufacture the emotions but bypass the thinking. In other words, they want to generate a false worship. Worshiping worship. Instead of worshiping God. But Paul's not calling us to do that. He understands if there is emotion, the kind of emotion God's looking for is the kind of emotion that responds to a greater understanding of Him. A greater depth of truth. Now, just before we get into the details of what Paul has to say to us, let me take you for a moment to a scene of worship to a worship experience, and one that I think perfectly illustrates everything that Paul's saying to us. It's found to us in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 the scene is the temple. And there's debate about whether or not this is a vision or an actual experience. We're not going to settle that debate here this morning, but clearly it's a worship experience that in Isaiah's mind is taking place in the temple. And listen as he describes this, because the scene is a temple, the source of this worship is a renewed understanding or a deeper understanding of the God he's worshiping in a way that he's never understood it before. He says in Isaiah 6 verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah says in verse 5 with what must have been an outburst of emotion, an emotional response Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The language there is really hard to capture in translation, because he's using a word for absolute obliteration. He's using perhaps one of the strongest Hebrew words for being undone, for for making something go from existing to non-existing. I am pulverized, crushed, we might say, falling to pieces, weeping, no doubt, falling on the floor, feeling the weight of his sin, not knowing anywhere to turn. He was overcome with emotion. Why? Because of what he had learned about God. And there's this outburst. And you'll see in verse 7, it comes also with an understanding, a renewed understanding of God's mercy. Because as he feels all of this, he understands God's holiness. In a way, he's never understood God's holiness. And he feels himself so filthy in light of this holiness. But in verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold... This has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So here you see mercy from God. Instead of being crushed, instead of being absolutely obliterated, He's forgiven. His guilt is removed. It's taken away. And in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. What's that? That's sacrifice. That's that's Isaiah saying, look, I have understood now the mercies of God. I've seen exactly how merciful God is to me. So what else can I do but present my body as a living sacrifice? What else can I do except just say to God, here I am. Whatever you want is whatever I'll do. But it doesn't end that, In there. In verse 9, he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, do not understand, keep on seeing, do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, until houses without people, then the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are as many, are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned like a terebinth, like an oak whose stump remains. It will be felled, and the holy seed is in its stump. So God is basically spelling out His mission. God's saying, look, this is what you're going to do. This is the way people are going to respond. This is the way you need to be prepared. This is how long it's going to go for. This is what it's ultimately all about. In other words... He presents himself as uh, to God as a living sacrifice, as an instrument. And God says, okay, this is what I want you to do. This is my will. This is the way that you need to follow me. Now, back in Romans chapter 12, this is exactly what Paul wants for us. This is the worship experience He wants for you and I. He wants us to understand worship. He wants us to understand that the right kind of worship is going to have its, its motivations in the right place. It's going to have the right kind of presentation of ourself. And He wants us to understand that it's going to have as its ultimate and primary result, primary evidence, a cognitive comprehension of the particulars of what God would want you to do. It's going to result, in other words, in a clearer and clearer understanding of the will of God. Before we get to that in verse 2, though, just to retrace where we have already began, Paul told us, you remember it as we saw in past weeks, that in order for our worship to be genuine to be authentic, in order for it to be the kind of Christian worship God is seeking, first of all, it has to have the right motive. It must have the motive of God's mercy. This is his opening appeal. He appeals to us in Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God or in the particular case of Romans, based on all of the doctrinal truth that we have studied for the last year and a half, the truths of election and redemption and justification, if that understanding isn't there, if that depth of understanding and that motive of God's mercy isn't there, you will have a hard time maintaining any level of worship. If you are not overwhelmed this morning by your weakness and your sinfulness and God's mercy, you're going to have a hard time having any kind of meaningful worship experience. And to the extent that you understand the truths of those, of those uh, doctrines, to that same extent you will have Christian worship, which leads secondly... To then the central activity, which is the sacrifice of self. Paul says, because of these mercies, he pleads for us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Key idea is sacrifice. As we noted last week, this is really, this morning, not about what you get. It's about what you give. This isn't about what you get out of this morning. It's about what you give. It's about sacrifice. And Paul is calling on us to lay our bodies, our whole lives, on the altar to God. Our lips, our hands, our hearts, our ears, our eyes, everything that we are, for whatever he desires to do with it. Thirdly, this takes us to verse 2 and to what Paul tells us is the unmistakable result of all this, the unmistakable evidence of this genuine worship. And if you have any hope of of experiencing and maintaining Christian worship, you have to understand that the unmistakable evidence will be a transformed life. It will be a transformed life. Or we could say it this way. The unmistakable evidence is discernment, the development of discernment, the ability to know what pleases God and what doesn't please God, the clarity to understand exactly how He would want you to respond, exactly what He would want you to do. And if you are not progressing each week in that, if you're not growing in that understanding, you're not going to be able to follow Him. You're not going to be able to sacrifice yourself to Him. So the unmistakable evidence in all of this results in this discernment because because the sacrifice of ourself is inseparably linked from the understanding of what God wants us to do. And so Paul says, ultimately... This is where you're leading. Or another way to say this, this is how you can evaluate your worship. This is how you can evaluate your worship. Are you, on one hand, being conformed to this world, or are you, on the other hand, being transformed by the renewal of your mind in order that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? That... That's how you evaluate your worship. You don't evaluate it based on how you feel. You don't evaluate it based on what you got out of it. You don't evaluate it based on... You evaluate it based on whether or not as you walk away, are you clearly not being conformed anymore to this world, but clearly being transformed into the image of what God wants you to be, understanding clearly what His will is in the various matters of life. This is the central element of of evaluation, the key result that's supposed to happen, the increased ability to discern God's will so that you can do it. And to understand God's will more clearly, you have to have two things. First of all, you have to have exposure to the dangers of worldly thinking. And secondly, you have to have exposure to the mind of Christ, so that you can constantly be transformed out of the mold of the world and into that image. You can't have one or the other and really be accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish. You can't really have just this drumbeat of, of uh, do not do this, do not do that. You can't have just a list of of legalistic uh, standards that you're going to just dress yourself with and you're going to be the good Christian boy or girl. You can't have that and assume that you have achieved the standard of Christian worship. On the other hand, you can't have just the giddiness of celebration without the stern warnings about being conformed to the world. Paul says we must have this if we are to worship God or have the result flowing out of our worship that is necessary. This kind of transformed life. And he gives us the process, if you will, in three steps. The main section here in verse 2 kind of lays out these three steps. And the problem is not that this process is complex, It's not that it's difficult to understand. The problem is that no one associates it with worship. They all think it's something to be done on a Bible study night or a Wednesday night class or something like that. No one associates it with worship. They think worship is about singing and feeling and dancing and swaying and smokes and light and all that other stuff. And so all the stuff that goes into the name of worship in a building or buildings all across this nation and around the world have little or nothing to do with the process Paul's talking about. People associate all kinds of things with worship, but not with the things Paul mentions in this verse. And so whatever is going on has little hope of actually producing genuine Christian worship. Now, we could break this down and say that worship produces this transformed life by doing these three things. We've already seen that it has to have the right motive of God's mercy. We've already seen that it has to have the central activity of presenting yourself. But but beyond that, that sacrifice of ourselves is going to yield itself in a transformed life when we have these three elements. First look, we must constantly be explaining the dangers of worldly thinking. You have to. You can't just present a a uh, rosy picture of religion without framing it against the context and the backdrop of the dangers of worldly thinking. And so in our worship, in our songs, in our public reading of Scripture, in the things that we say in, in the... Uh, Platform here in the ways that we worship God, all the other ministries that take place here on a Sunday morning, or honestly, even in what you're doing daily in your time in the Word of God, there must be a constant reflection and contemplation of the dangers of worldly thinking, the the, the various ways and the manners in which worldly thinking is seeking to trap you and to get you. To join in with its rebellion against God. Now when we're talking about worldly thinking, don't associate that with things of the world. We're not suggesting that it's dangerous and bad to think about things of the world. Sometimes that's necessary. In fact, it's good It's good to think about those things. It's good to plan. It's good to uh, be a steward of resources that you have. It's good to think about people, and it's good to think about even the creation that God has created for us to enjoy. We're not saying that the material world is bad and that somehow you just have to sort of think about the immaterial or the ethereal world. We're not suggesting that to think about responsibilities related to your home or your family or your job are inherently unspiritual so that all you can do is ponder the abstract. God created this world and He created it good and He created it for us to enjoy. And not only that, God created you to work. He created you to do something. He created you to go out and express this worship of God in the dominion that you bring to whatever you set your hands to, bringing order out of chaos or beauty out of ugliness or progress out of decline. And so it's altogether appropriate for you to think about worldly things in that way. In fact, you ought to want to understand God's will in all of those things as an act of worship. Scripture tells us to gaze upon the handiwork of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. And so whenever you are looking at creation, whether through a telescope or a microscope, you're studying it, you're marveling at it, you're trying to utilize it in whatever way to bring good and blessing to other people, you do all of that because God has given you this creative impulse and when He made you in His own image, you do all of that and you do it as an act of worship to God. So to speak of the danger of worldly thinking doesn't suggest that when you are worshiping God, you should feel guilty when you're thinking about these other things. Decorating your home, cleaning up the dishes, or you should feel guilty about thinking about your job. You need to think about all those things. Those are necessary. Those are good. They need to be redeemed. Paul doesn't want you to stop thinking about all those things, but he wants you to start thinking of them in the right way. He wants us to think the right things about all that stuff. He wants us to think with discernment. When Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, when he's asking us to do that, what he's talking about is the unseen, invisible system of beliefs and opinions that dictate the behavior and worldview of everyone around you. He's talking, about the, he's talking about the whole complex, the whole system behind it. Kind of like we talk about the world of politics. The connections, the networks, all the, all the uh, attempts to manipulate that go along with that whole thing. Or we talk about the world of sports we see use that language we talk about the certain uh, the certain values and the certain objectives that people are trying to achieve in that and we're constantly be to be calling ourselves to look at all of the world around us with a different a perspective because as christians we have different beliefs we have different thoughts we have different goals we have different hopes we have different purposes we have different motives radically different we have nothing in common in those areas we may work together socialize together play together study together with unbelievers And the Bible certainly doesn't forbid us from doing that. We're to be aware, however, that as we do that, there's a danger in the floating mass of opinions, in the way that all of this operates around us. And what Paul's calling for us to do is to not be conformed to that mass of opinions, to that system of ideas. If for no other reason because that system that just is left in so many ways unstated assumed or implied that system is under the direct influence of satan satan we are told first john 5:19 has the whole world under his power We know that we are from God, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under His sway. Or Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that unbelievers follow, quote, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The the prince of the power of the air is the one that this world is following, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he calls Satan the god of this world. He's the one who's reigning over this world. So the whole thing is the world of Satan. We're not talking about the physical world. That's not his. We're talking about the governing system of thoughts and beliefs and opinions that are out there. And it is the prevailing value system that governs the whole thing. We're not supposed to be conformed to it. We're not supposed to be conformed to its ambitions, to its purposes, to its moral standards, to its level of honesty or greed or its ideas about religion or sex or relationships or whatever it is. How it measures greatness. How it measures smallness. We, we don't conform ourselves to any of that. Instead, we're constantly Exposing it. Explaining the dangers so that we are not sucked into it. We should be continually confronted with the impossibility of living in both worlds. You can't. You can't live in both. You can't shuttle back and forth. You can't be in God's world here for three hours on Sunday morning and Satan's world the rest of the week. You can't be conformed to his world during the work day and your world or God's world in the evening when you're with your family you can't do that you can't live in both worlds you can't serve two masters because one is full of lies one is full of truth one is governed by Satan one is governed by God one is defined by darkness the other is defined by light and to not be conformed to the pattern of the world Is a tremendous challenge because you are bombarded. You are bombarded through the week constantly with worldly opinions, with worldly chatter, with worldly attitudes, with its entertainment, with its commercials, with its peer pressures, with its sense of shame. With its threats and intimidation. And so it's a tremendous challenge for you and I not to be conformed to this. One of the greatest challenges that we have. But it's also one of the greatest sources of joy and peace and usefulness to the Lord when we resist it. Constantly allowing ourselves to be transformed so that we can be used by God. You know, Paul asks in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what accord does Christ have with Belial, Christ with Satan? What, in what ways can they work together? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The obvious answer to all those questions is none, there is none. He's not talking about the superficial connections that you have. He's not talking about the superficial links. He's talking about the system of beliefs. You will obviously work together, play together, uh, maybe associate together in some sort of superficial way. But when it comes to linking your heart and mind, you cannot. In fact, earlier in the context, Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. It comes from an image of agriculture where people would take a plow and they would hook it up to an animal, a beast of burden. And in order to make better headway, in order to get things done in a quicker way, what they would do is sometimes they would take a yoke, a piece of wood and and link up two animals to pull stronger on their plow. But what Paul is saying, he's really pulling this out of the Old Testament, you wouldn't want to hook two different kinds of animals. You wouldn't want to hook a a mule and a horse. You wouldn't want to hook a horse with an ox. You wouldn't want to hook up two unequal animals. Why is that? Well, because they have different natures, because they have different Uh, even uh, body types. They have different gates, even in their walk, in their stride. And so what you're going to have is you're going to have constantly, a, a farmer would know this, you'd have constantly one animal pulling off to the side. It's incredibly difficult to plow a straight row whenever you're linking these two unlike animals together. And so Paul is urging the Corinthians not to imagine that they're going to somehow do the work of God better by linking arms with unbelievers. By linking arms with the world. That somehow they'll plow a row faster that way. Well, In the same way, we can't expect that by dabbling with And toying around with worldly thinking that somehow we will get by or make progress in our conformity to God. Or that our worship will be useful. It's foolishness. Because we're talking about profound differences. In fact, it's not just differences, it's opposition. There's hatred. Between these two ways. It's what the scripture says. John tells us. John 3.19. When he's talking about the coming of Christ. This is the judgment. That light came into the world. And that people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And it doesn't come to the light. Lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. They hate it. They hate your way of thinking. They hate the way of the Scripture. They do not want to hear it. They do not want to be, uh, have it imposed on them. They do not want to have it exposed to them. They don't want to have to deal with it. And so the pressure is for you to conform to their ways. Because there's animosity. And you're supposed to govern your life that way. Jesus said, the world hated me. It will also hate you. Words of Christ. We don't like to be hated. We don't like to be singled out for scorn. None of us goes to a party. Well, let me say Few of us go to a party without checking out the dress code, right? I have some children who sometimes do that and we help them out. You go because our natural instinct is to want to match and fit in and kind of conform. Same thing happens though in an attitudinal way, in a in a spiritual sense. Our reflex is to not want to stand out, not to want to be the object of this kind of scorn and hatred. And so what do we do? We conform. But the psalmist says, Psalm 119, I love your commandments above gold, even fine gold. Therefore, I consider your precepts to be right and I hate every false way. See, it's not just their side. You're supposed to be hating their way. Psalm 119, 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Or, if you want to hear it in a more pronounced way, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verse 5, we, that is Christians, we destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul is using this language here to say this is how we think about worldly thinking. Not only do we not conform to it, we attack it. These are fortresses that we are assaulting. And we're supposed to be undermining it. We're supposed to be attacking it. We're not supposed to be dabbling with it and entertaining it in that way. We're supposed to understand that it has its source in satanic influence, that it comes from the God of this world, that it represents rebellion against our king and our maker, and we are to destroy the opinions and the arguments that are fostered by the world against righteousness. And we're to bring those thoughts and that knowledge into obedience to Christ. Now that's militant language, but it doesn't suggest a militant tone. It's not calling us to be argumentative or belligerent. In fact, in the very same chapter, Paul twice refers to his own meek and gentle manner of speaking, which was sometimes misunderstood by his opponents but even with a gentleness in our speech and a gentleness in our tone, Paul says we need to be assaulting worldly thinking. Because we understand, James 4.4 4 says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And as he says in the second half of that verse, anyone who desires to make himself a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God can't have it both ways. You can't play the game. This unfortunately is not the way people orient their worship. That is not what they're thinking whenever they put together their set of songs or their program for Sunday morning. That is not what the aim is. The modern church, if anything, is as in an all-out Effort to embrace the culture, embrace the world, to dress itself as like the culture as it can. They sense the hatred of the light, and so they make every attempt to mask the light and to minimize the differences, to redefine themselves on a cultural level with unbelievers so that they will not be hated, but they will be looked at as savvy, as hip, as trendy, as whatever. And the whole mantra of the modern church is that the unbelieving world must first feel that they belong in order that they might eventually believe. The, the belonging before believing is the basic philosophy of ministry that drives the modern church. And so there's this effort to minimize the difference Not to confront the cultural attitudes, not to warn of the dangers, not to present the offensive ways, not to provoke the inherent hatred that is there, and they make all of this effort to remake the church in the image of the world, and then eventually they come to the conclusion that the gospel really isn't that offensive, that the unbelieving world really isn't so antagonistic, they don't really understand us on why we would continue to do these things that stir up so much hatred. Because they have found a way to conform so much to the world that the world looks at their worship and what do they see? They see a mirror. In fact, in many cases, when you show up at a church these days, what you actually hear are the world's songs. Their ideology, their view of life being sung to them. And Paul's asking, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What is your worship supposed to be doing? While all this is taking place, Paul is calling us to have a worship that resists conformity, exposes the dangers, recognizes all of those things articulates the pitfalls that face you every day and bring you to a place of repentance. Now very quickly, along with explaining the dangers of worldly thinking, genuine worship also needs to expose us to the renewed image of Christ. It isn't just bashing, and that's probably the minor part of the whole deal. Paul is saying that we're not to be conformed to this world. Why? Because we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our our minds need to be renewed. He doesn't say exactly how that is to take place, but there are plenty of places in Scripture that describe for us the process. Colossians 3, verse 10, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's a renewal that takes place by an examination of our maker. Or 2 Corinthians 3, we read of this kind of transformation when it says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're we're in this transformational process of renewal. A renewal in knowledge after the image of the Creator. And so we're constantly beholding His glory, gazing on His image, meditating on His ways. That means that the the content of our worship is filled not only with the character of God, but also with the works of God, with the heart of God, with the wisdom of God, with the motives of God, so that we can measure ourselves by it. We are to be constantly contemplating who God is and why He is the way He is. The wisdom behind His character. Our worship, in other words, must be deeply theological. I mean, that's what theology is. It's the study of God. And if we're... As a central part of our worship to be renewed in his image then our worship must be theological it must have the language and the content and the and the the, the driving if you will purposes behind redemption through and through of course we We can't know who Christ is apart from His revelation about Himself which is His Word of God. I mean, we don't all have our own individual Christs. It's not like we get to make up the Christ that we want to be conformed to. We don't make Christ after our image so that we can make ourselves after Him. We do this by what He teaches us in His Word about Him and so we are meditating on it. We are reading it. We are listening to it. We are being changed by it so that little by little... We are being conformed to His image. Instead of reflecting the world, we are beginning to reflect Him. Instead of bringing our thoughts into obedience and conformity to the world, we are taking our thoughts captive and bringing them into obedience to Christ. Now that's not the end of the process. That's not where it ends. Worship yields transformation, but it yields transformation through this renewing process. In this renewing process, Paul says, manifests itself very particularly in the ability to test. He says that. You do all this, you're renewed renewed in your minds so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect that process doesn't end. It's not like you go through Sunday school and go through high school and you learn a few things and then you spend the rest of your life just sort of coasting on that little bit of knowledge. Discernment is a lifelong pursuit. It is constantly something that you are being pressed through in your trials where you thought that you had a handle on something, you thought that you understood something, You thought that you understood how to study your Bible. You thought you understood how to pray. You thought that you understood how to make wise decisions. You thought that you understood how to resolve conflict with your wife. You thought that you understood how to raise your children and how to be a good husband and how to uh, uh, do your job well for the glory of Christ. You thought you understood all those things. And then somewhere along the way, you're tested and you're pressed And the fractures, the crevices and the cracks show. Kind of like the person in the old uh, cities of the Middle East when they would go to buy fine pottery and fine china. There was no Walmart return policy. So you wanted to make sure that what you got was the good thing. And so they would take these, these vases and these nice pieces of pottery outside the shop and they would hold it up to the sun and they would look at it through the light because in the light they could see the little imperfections that were embedded in there that were invisible to the eye but they knew that in time would cause the demolishing the breaking of that pot and so we're taking every idea we're taking every thing every experience and we're holding it up to the light Of God's truth. And we're trying to find where are those hidden cracks? They're going to give way to a fall. We're testing. We're going through this. And and it's not an instantaneous thing, it's not a one time decision, it is a constant process that God's taken us through through all the difficulties of our lives. And it's certainly not the result of some emotional high that you reach through the musical or sensory experience on a Sunday morning. It is the process of understanding the dangers of worldly thinking and renewing yourself in the image of Christ. And then finally being equipped to discern, to know the will of God. You're equipped. That's what worship is supposed to do. That's what worship is leading to you. That's where Isaiah found himself in his worship experience. He got to the place. He understood the mercy of God. He presented himself as a, as a sacrifice. He presented himself to God. Here am I. And then what's the next thing that comes after that? This is my will for you. This is what you need to do. And this is the way you need to understand it's going to happen. It's not going to be easy. And people are going to hate you. And they're going to despise you. But you've got to keep preaching. We have to have this if our worship is going to be genuine. We've got to grow in our ability to test things. We encounter all kinds of ideas and we need to know some of them might be categorized in the area of of common sense. That just through life and experience people just learn certain lessons the hard way. And your parents and, and your neighbors and your friends might have uh, even shared some of these with you. You know, they, they share with you that a watch pot doesn't seem to boil quite as fast. And you watch one one time and you say, yes, that's, that's pretty right. And I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to waste my time watching water boil anymore. Now, that's just common sense. That's just the, 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 the basic things of life. And then there's some ideas we would categorize not under common sense, but we would under, uh, categorize them under common grace. That is to say that God gives every person born in this world a conscience. And whether or not they submit to God or not, Romans 1 says that He has revealed His attributes to them through the created world. And there are certain things that even the unbelieving world will come to appreciate. Certain things about beauty, certain things about economy, certain things about relationships that even the unbelieving world will adopt because it is profitable, to do them. They, they have a sense of what God's Word says that a lazy man doesn't tend to get ahead in life and so they appreciate hard work the way that Scripture would admonish us to. So there are things that are common sense, there are things that are common grace, but then there are some things that are definitely categorized as truth and falsehood. Things that will appeal to people because it appeals to their flesh, it appeals to their inherent pride, it appeals to their self centeredness, it appeals to their insecurities, it appeal, appeals to their fears, it, it appeals to their darkened hearts. And so they're going to embrace it and they're going to push it on you and they're going to tell you how great it made them feel and how much it helped them and they're going to come to you and you're going to be in some difficult situation and they're going to give you their advice and their counsel and and you're going to listen to it and it's going to kind of make sense and you're not going to realize that it's really appealing to your flesh until you put it up to the light of God's Word and you examine it with a humble heart, a willing heart to do the will of God. Because we're not above those kinds of temptations. So our worship needs to continually be equipping us with this. Calling us to measure all these things against what we learn about Christ. Helping us see the dangerous motives of the world more clearly. Helping us see the wonderful heart of God more clearly. And testing everything. People don't want to do that. They don't want to think. The modern world doesn't want to think. They want to just come. They want to be carried along. They want to be swept up in the emotion. They want to dive into the abyss of some uh, mindless movie, some mindless TV. They don't want to spend time wading through a book or reading something of several hundred pages. They don't want to have to ponder. Or in religious sense, they don't want to be forced to think about the deeper things. They don't want all of those inner heart motives exposed. They just want a list of do's and don'ts. Just show up, tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and I'll plug it into my program and I'll go and I won't have to think. They want an out for outward form of religion. They want to go to church. They want to be stirred a little emotionally. And then they want to just sort of blithely go back into the world and just ride along. I kind of like the pilot of one of the loudspeaker and tells his people well I've got some good news and some bad news the bad news is uh, our instruments are out and we don't know where we're going the good news is we have a tailwind we're making great headway (laughs) people are just going along life is running by got kids to take, take here you got job duties to do you got houses to buy and sell and all these other things and you never stop to think measure what is the will of God what's good what's acceptable what's pleasing yeah I may not get this deal done I may not hit my metrics at work but what's pleasing to God yeah we we may not get that chore done at home But is God pleased with the way that I'm shepherding my children? Yeah, I may not meet all the standards and expectations of what the world says I'm supposed to be. But what's good and what's pleasing? What's acceptable to God? That's what worship's supposed to be doing. That's the way you're supposed to leave. You're supposed to leave presenting yourself to God. Here am I. Whatever you want. Here am I. And now God, help me to see the ways that I'm being conformed. Help me to resist that. And help me to be like you. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we certainly want to be moved with conviction. We want to feel our hearts Over sin and hard heartedness and prayerlessness and all those things. But guard us, Lord, from ever assuming that what we do here each week is all about the way we feel. Guard us from trying to manufacture some false form of worship when there's no transformation. Make us like Isaiah presenting ourselves to You so that we can do Your will. And then, Lord, speak. Teach us. Tell us. Let us see the error that's all around us more clearly. And let us see the beauty of our Savior more clearly. And let us not be conformed to the God of this world. But let us be transformed to our Maker and our Creator.